0: Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14. For a few weeks now, I found myself thinking about this beautiful passage here in Hebrews four fourteen through 16. And so I'm excited to, to preach on it this morning. Um, we're jumping in, of course, to the book of Hebrews. So, uh, we don't have the benefit of having gone through it together, but this passage here, verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4, it really serves as a, as a transition in the flow of the book of Hebrews. It's, it's, it, for one, it serves as a great conclusion to the first section of Hebrews, chapters 1 through 4, where, where the author has been exalting the, the supremacy of Christ. Christ. And now then, so not only does it conclude that section, but it also introduces the next section, which is a lengthy section for the next six chapters, the the book of Hebrews will be talking about the the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, um, we're, we're this morning focusing on those verses that serve as that bridge between those two sections, and we want to consider the role of Jesus as our great high priest, So I'd ask the congregation to stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. Please follow along as I read Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we sang, we need you now. I need you, Lord. Please uh, fill me with your spirit. Please give us all ears to hear. Help me proclaim this uh, boldly and clearly this morning. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. The title of the message today is Our Perfect Priest. Our Perfect Priest. A priest is a mediator. A priest is... Someone to represent you before God. Someone to bring you to God. And you and I need a priest. We need someone to mediate between us and God because we have all sinned against God. By nature, we need reconciled to God because of our sin. By nature, the Bible says we are actually at enmity with God, with our Creator. We have despised and rebelled against Him. And our sin has left us under His judgment. And so, please understand, you need a priest this morning. You need a mediator. You need someone to mediate to reconcile this relationship. You need someone to reconcile you back to your Creator. And not just any priest will do, you need a perfect priest. It needs to be someone who can enter into the very throne room of God, someone who can perfectly represent you, someone who can make full and lasting atonement for your sins, someone who can bring complete and lasting reconciliation between you and God. You and I need a perfect priest. And the the good news I want to declare to you today is Jesus Christ is that perfect priest, He is our great high priest. Christ alone can represent us and reconcile us to God. Christ alone can continue to minister to us in the very presence of God. Christ alone is the perfect priest that we need. Today from this passage here from verses 14 through 16 of Hebrews 4, we'll see two ways that Jesus is our perfect priest and then two ways that God calls us to respond to that blessed truth. So, number one, if you're taking notes in in your bulletin there. We have an exalted high priest who made full atonement for sin. We have an exalted high priest who made full atonement for sin. Look at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Understand that under the old covenant, under the Mosaic covenant, the covenant God made with the nation of Israel, there were many priests ministering for the nation of Israel. But, there was only, but it was only the high priest who could enter the most holy place. We heard that in our scripture reading, right? It was only that under the old covenant, it was only the high priest who could enter that most holy place where the glory of the presence of God dwelt. And, and even then, the high priest was only allowed to enter once a year on the day of atonement, but now, under the new covenant, notice, we have a great high priest. Right? Not, Jesus is not just another run-of-the-mill high priest. He's not just one of many along the lines of Aaron, of high priest. No, he is exclusive. He is exalted. He is unique. He is a great high priest. His priesthood is unique. Jesus is unique and exalted because of his status and because of his work. And the passage today um, primarily emphasizes his status, but I'm going to talk about his work as well, right? Notice he's exalted because he is the son of God, it says in verse 14. Again, Jesus is no ordinary priest. He is the eternal son of God. He is the second person of the Godhead. He, he is truly God and truly man. And so he is perfectly equipped to minister As our priest, as our mediator, he became one of us. He identified with us so that he could represent us before God. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so Jesus is our perfect and great high priest. Having died and rose again, Jesus is still Truly God and truly man. He, he rose again in a perfect human body. He's in a glorified body in heaven now. Applying the benefits of his work for us. Which again, that leads me to talk about his work. Right? He's... He's our perfect high priest, he's our great high priest because of his status, and, and because of his status, then he accomplished a great work for us. Jesus is exalted, look at verse 14, because he has passed through the heavens, right? That makes us think about his, his resurrection, his exaltation, he is seated at the right hand of God. And the book of Hebrews, as, again, as we heard read earlier, we will go on and expand on that and talk about his work. And when we think of passing through the heavens, we think of what the, the uh, high priest did under the old covenant, right? On that day of atonement. You can read about that in Leviticus 16. Again, our Hebrews 9 talked about it as well. In the Jewish temple, there was a, a heavy curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple, right? And, and in that most holy place was where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was where the Shekinah glory, the, the, the special presence of God dwelt and so no one was allowed to go into the most holy place even the high priest wasn't allowed to go in there except on that one day of the year on the day of atonement and then on the day of atonement then the high priest would pass through the heavy that heavy curtain bringing blood sacrifices and enter the most holy place again bringing a sacrifice for himself because of his own sin also bringing a sacrifice for the people for the nation that he was representing. And that annual sacrifice provided temporary atonement. That annual sacrifice provided just really a temporary atonement because, as, as Hebrews will tell us, the blood of bulls and goats could never truly take away sins. But what it was doing is it was, in a sense, holding off God's wrath. It was enabling God to, a holy God to dwell among A a sinful people. And it was pointing us toward the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so Jesus is a far superior high priest. For one, he doesn't need to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. Because he is without sin, as we're going to see in this very passage. And instead of bringing in an, uh, an animal sacrifice for the people he represents. No, Jesus offered up himself as a perfect sacrifice. On the cross he... He offered himself uh, as an atonement for sin, as a sacrifice for sin, to pay for the sins of his people. Christ's suffering and death was a propitiation, 1 John 4.10 tells us. That means he was not just holding off God's wrath, not just kind of staving it off for another year. No, he was fully and perfectly satisfying God's wrath and turning it away from all who would be united to him through faith. In dying on the cross in the place of his people, Jesus made full atonement for all who believe. That means he fully paid for our sin. He fully repaired our relationship with God. And so the Bible says everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ as Lord and Savior is reconciled to God. And again... Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. What a difference that was from the Old Covenant where they were offering sacrifices literally every day. Because it was just, you know, again, it was just, it was just kind of temporarily appeasing God, temporarily hold, holding off His wrath, kind of temporarily atoning for sin. But Christ offered Himself once and for all. He provided full atonement. He provided permanent access to the Father for all who trust in His name. This transaction did not take place in a physical man-made temple, but in heaven, in the very courtroom and throne room of heaven where the unmitigated glory of God dwells. And so instead of passing through the curtains, he passed through the heavens and offered this sacrifice to the Father. By dying on the cross, Jesus made full atonement for the sins of all who believe in him. And again, it was once and for all. Nothing more needed to be done. His death fully paid for the sins of his people. His death fully satisfied God's holy wrath. Because Christ's sinless life meant he was a a spotless sacrifice. And Jesus being truly man and truly God, he was that perfect mediator between God and man. So again, think of our great high priest. He has gone where no other priest could go. He's gone all the way into the heavenly sanctuary. He has done what no other priest could do. He has made full atonement for sins. Jesus has provided the perfect sacrifice. He has made full payment for our sins. He has secured lasting reconciliation with God. He's provided ultimate and permanent access to God's presence. He has conquered sin and death. He's been raised from the dead in victory. So consider his exalted status and his glorious work. He's established his eternal kingdom. He's been exalted to the Father's right hand. He's reigning now and one day his unchallenged rule will cover the whole earth. This is our perfect priest. And so what does the text tell us to do then? In light of this, in light of who Jesus is, in light of what he has done, it tells us to hold fast. Let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to your confession that Jesus is Lord. Hold fast to your confession that Jesus is Savior. Hold fast to your confession that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Hold fast. Hold fast, Christian. Hold fast, young person. Keep believing in Christ alone. Don't lay hold of other beliefs. Don't toy with false, the false teaching of this world. Don't water down the gospel. Don't compromise on who Christ is. Keep believing the word of God. Keep believing in the apostolic testimony of who Jesus is and what he has done. Hold fast to that your whole life by God's grace. Hold fast. Forsake anything that would, would seek to pull you away from holding fast. And that, there are those dangers in this world. That's what this world does. The world wants you to compromise. The world wants you to add things. The world wants you to water it down. The world says, ah, you know, don't, don't be so exclusive. Don't grip onto Christ so tightly. Consider these other things. No. Forsake that. Reject that. Hold fast to your confession. Keep depending on God's grace. Keep trusting in Christ's finished work. If you... if Again, we're to be salt and light. We're to show the love of Christ to unbelievers, absolutely, and point them to Christ. But if there are any relationships that would, that would be pulling you away from Christ, you've got to forsake those. You've got you've to create some healthy boundaries. You've got to say, I'm not going to let anything pull me away from holding fast to Christ. We have an exalted high priest, loved ones. Who made full atonement for sin. Let us then, the text says, hold fast our confession. And What a joy it is to, to be together and to hear the gospel proclaimed. And, and later we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? And so we'll, we'll have the gospel pictured for us. And these are means of grace God gives us to, to, to do that. To hold fast our confession. We are to hold fast to Christ. But, you know, in the flow of, of the text here, someone might say, but wait a minute. You said Jesus is exalted in heaven, right? I mean, the text says that. And since he's at the right hand of the Father, way up there in heaven, maybe Jesus is too far removed from my situation. Maybe he can't relate to me. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe I can't really depend on him or go to him for help because, he, you know, he's so distant, that's what verse 15 addresses now then. Look at verse 15. For we, continuing to talk about our perfect high priest, our perfect mediator, our perfect representative. For we do not have a high priest. Right? It's like he's continuing to encourage us to hold fast and then he's going to give us another admonition as well. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, if you're taking notes, the second point here today is we have a sympathetic high priest who understands and helps in our weaknesses. Not only do we have an exalted high priest who made full atonement for our sins, but we have a sympathetic high priest who understands and helps us in our weaknesses. Praise God. The text uses a double negative here, right? Right? It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable (laughs) to sympathize. It's like, you know, because again, think about it. They can't use bold, right? They can't use all caps, right? You know, this is... The Spirit using the author to, to emphasize this point that we, Jesus is able to sympathize. We do have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Okay, well, what does sympathize mean? Please understand this because I, you know, I think when we think of sympathy, we think of oh, someone feeling sorry for somebody, right? And that's, that's nice. Oh, it's far greater than that. This word sympathize is a compound word that combines the prefix with to the verbs to suffer, so it means to suffer with. So this sympathy is not just kind of distant, detached pity. It's not feeling sorry for someone from a distance, kind of looking down on them and saying, Man, that's yeah, that's too bad. That's that's sad. No, it's far more. It means to enter into fully it means to get so close to someone that you feel what they are feeling the text here is emphasizing the solidarity that jesus has with his people really the probably the closest we can come to it is is maybe in our our, our parenting relationship or yeah our parent to child relationship right you know when you hate to see your kids hurting and you just you just want to scoop them up and you just like oh i wish i could just you know take this burden away from you right that's kind of maybe the closest we can come to it, but this is even more, right? This shows us the heart of our great high priest. This shows us the heart of our Savior, that Jesus' heart is drawn to us in our weaknesses, in our sufferings. He loves us so much that he, and I know we use this as a cliche, but he feels our pain. He joins with us in our suffering and makes it in one, in some sense his own he enters into our chaos and bears our burdens with us and this verb also and has the idea of not just feeling but helping right he sits with us in our pain he's with it he understands he draws near he's comforting and he's helping he's helping the high priest gives help to us who are helpless. And, that, and really, that's the emphasis of the text, right? We, we maybe tend to think, oh yeah, when everything's going well, it's like, wow, I can really feel the presence of, of the Lord. You know, his face is shining down on me, and it's like, wow, you know, I know he's right there when things are going well. But then when things are going poorly, we've, we maybe feel like God is distant from us. And especially if things are going poorly because of our sin, we feel like, oh man, I am whew, I am in the doghouse. I am far away from God. He's 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 probably, you know, turned his back on me. He's probably you know, frowning on me. Is Jesus when we when we're in pain from the either the suffering of this world or especially when we're in pain from our own sinful and foolish choices, What is Jesus doing? Is he far off? Does he have his arms crossed? Is he shaking his head in utter disappointment and disgust? No. No, he's not. Verse 15 says specifically it is in our weaknesses that Jesus sympathizes with us. It's in our weaknesses that he draws near and enters into and bears our burdens with us. This word weaknesses, it's a general term, it can refer to physical weaknesses, it can refer to external pressures, it also ref- can refer to the, the weaknesses of the flesh. Our, you could call it our moral weaknesses, the things about us that, that cause us or through which we fall into sin. And I think verse 15 has both physical and and moral weaknesses in view. But the context especially points to those moral weaknesses. Because it's talking about, uh, later in the very next chapter, the very next verses, it'll talk about the the priests and how they had to offer uh, sacrifices for their sin. It's going to talk about how Jesus committed no sin. That's why he's able to help us in our times of temptation and sin. So it's talking especially about our moral weaknesses, But Jesus is with us. He's with us in our pain. He's with with you, loved one. He's a perfect priest. He's with you when you are burdened with the pressures of life. He's with you when you are fearful about the future. He's with you when you are discouraged by your own failings. He's with you when you feel beaten down by this fallen world. Jesus is with us. He's with us in our pain and in our confusion and our discouragement. What does he do? He draws near. He sits close. He embraces us in that moment. And he helps us. He helps us. He bears it with us. He enters into that to minister to us. Right? That's what it says. That he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And then the next verse is going to encourage us to approach the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. How can Jesus sympathize like this with us? How is he able to enter into our suffering and make it his own? I mean, how is he able to relate so intimately and help so powerfully? Because of who he is. He's truly God and truly man. He became one of us. He's he's truly God, so he has all the power and wisdom and faithfulness and love of God. And he's truly man. He became one of us. He knows what it's like. He left the glories of heaven and took on a human nature and lived among us. He's lived in this fallen world. And how did he live in that world? He didn't live in this world as Superman. He lived as a man. He lived as a man dependent on the Spirit of God, dealing with uh, and, and dependent on the Word of God, dealing with the trials and, and sins and temptations of this fallen world. He took on physical weakness. Jesus knows what it's like to be tired and hungry and sad. He knows what it's like to feel deserted and to be hated he entered into the chaos and the messiness of this fallen world think about it Jesus related to people right he became one of us and lived among us he knows what it's like to be hurt by others he knows what it's like for those close to him to not understand what he's going through (laughs) we just read that I think it was last night in our family devotions you know the disciples. As they're going to Jerusalem, right, you know, it's one of those times he's predicting what's going to happen to him. And what are they doing? They're arguing about who's the greatest, you know? It's like, oh, my gosh. How insensitive and hurtful can you be, you know? He's just told you he's going to suffer and die. And you guys are focused on yourselves. Jesus knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be hated by others. He understands physical weaknesses. Again, he knows how, what it's like to be mistreated, and he knows what it's like to experience temptations. Verse 15 says, Jesus has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. And I know is when we read that, we start having these questions, and, and, and it, it, maybe we're a little confused. We think, well, wait a minute. You know, Jesus, they didn't have smartphones back then. He doesn't understand, you know, what that's, the pressure that brings, what that's like. And we make a mistake when we try to bring our culture into that. What, what it's saying is Jesus faced every category of temptation that we face. Right? There's nothing new under the sun. I mean, yeah, the, yeah, the, 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 the mediums and the way you get those temptations come change. And, but the temptations have always been there since the fall. Jesus faced every category, every category of temptation we face, and he encountered it to the fullest. Jesus knows the pull and the power of sin. He knows what it's like to be tempted to doubt the goodness of God. He knows what it's like to be tempted to compromise in order to avoid suffering. He knows what it's like to be tempted to revolt against the Father's plan. He knows what it's like to be tempted to be selfish, to be tempted to do what would be best for him and not think of what others need. He knows what that's like. And so Jesus is able to help us because he knows temptations. He was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Praise God. Jesus experienced temptations, but he never gave in. Jesus never sinned. He obeyed the Father perfectly, even to death on a cross. And his sinlessness made him a perfect substitute for us. Again, a spotless sacrifice paid for our sins. Uh, that that paid f- fully for our sins, and a, a sinless life that secured our righteousness. And you might be, th- again, thinking, well, but how can Jesus help us when it, when what I'm really feeling is the, the guilt and the shame of, of giving in to sin? How can he relate to that? How can he help in those moments when he never sinned? Well, again, I wouldn't... Don't minimize the temptations that Jesus went through, the the power of temptation that he faced, the force of that. Though he never sinned, Jesus understands sin and temptation better than any of us. Though he never sinned, Jesus understands sin and temptation better than any of us. C.S. Lewis made this point by speaking of a man walking against the wind. All right, so picture a strong wind being like temptation, right? And, you know, if we're just trying to, we're trying to walk against that, we're trying to resist it, and, and once the wind gets strong enough, in Lewis's example, the man just gives in, right? You know, I mean, he just, you know, lies down, I think is what he said in his example, or you could say turns around and just lets it blow him, right? You know, he gave in to the temptation. What did Jesus do, though? Jesus never laid down He never gave in. He walked against the wind of temptation his entire life on earth. Again, relying on the Spirit, rehearsing the promises of Scripture, trusting his Father. Jesus never sinned. He experienced temptations to the fullest. He kept going against that his whole life. He knows the full force of temptation better than any of us. Plus, Jesus was tempted in ways and depths beyond any way that we know or have been tempted. Right? I mean, there's a uniqueness to some of the temptations he faced. The devil tempted Jesus to avoid the cross. The devil tempted Jesus to enjoy the glamour of the world by ditching the Father and worshiping Satan. But Jesus never gave in. He never sinned. He kept being obedient and trusting the Father. Relying on the Spirit and, and the truths of God's Word, he countered those temptations. And that makes him our perfect high priest. He's able to be with us and help us then in our time of temptation. That's what the verse says. Jesus is able to share in our pain, and he's able to help us precisely because he never sinned. A book that's been such a blessing to me, um, called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. He has a chapter on Hebrews 4, 15, and he says this, quote, Our sinless high priest is not one who needs rescue, but provides it. Later he says, he himself is not trapped in the hole of sin with us, and so because of that, he alone can pull us out. Because Jesus was tempted in every respect and overcame, he is able to help us in every situation we find ourselves in. And be encouraged. He understands. He sees and knows. He is a personal and powerful help. I mean, this the ramifications of this passage are huge. We are never alone, loved ones. And there's always someone who understands. And again, as great as the body of Christ is, and, and I thank God for it, and it's, it's a... It's it's something God gives us again as a means of grace and we are to help and 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 bear each other's burdens but e- even we as sinners right we fall short and there's times that maybe we don't f- fully understand what someone's going through but Jesus always understands as a, as a believer you can never say to Christ you don't know what I'm going through Can't say that he does know. He does know. He does understand. He has lived it. He withstood it, and he overcame. He's a perfect high priest. He's a sinless high priest. What does sin do? How does sin affect our ability to minister? Right? Sin makes our hearts hard. It makes us, you know, kind of question, kind of bitter, kind of whatever. Jesus doesn't have any sin. There's no hard heart there. He has perfect love. He has perfect compassion. He has perfect wisdom and understanding. And so he is able to help us. His perfection guarantees our salvation and our help. And that leads us to our second and final response this morning in verse 16. Right, having explained that he's this sympathetic high priest who understands and helps us in our, in our weaknesses, what is the admonition? I mean, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us then draw near to the throne of grace is how you can write it or summarize it, right? What is that calling us to? Well, that's an admonition to persistent and confident prayer. Because we have a sympathetic high priest who understands and helps in our weaknesses, the Bible says, let us pray for help. We have a perfect priest who's purchased access to God. So let us then go to God. Let us come confidently because of Christ. Because he's paid for all our sins. Because he's, he's opened the curtain. He's, he's provided the way. Loved ones, our God has the power to help, right? He's God. (laughs) He has all power. He has the power to help, and he knows personally what kind of help we need. He's all-knowing. He's wise. And he has a heart that longs to help. He's loving. He's compassionate. And so let us pray to him and find help. Let us draw near to his throne in prayer. Notice what does it call his throne? His throne. Don't you love this? What is it called? A a throne of law? A throne of condemnation? A throne of penance? No. It's a throne of grace. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. Our God is full of grace. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things we need? for life and godliness. Where sin abounds grace abounds all the more. Romans 5:20. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. 2 Corinthians 9:8. It's a throne of grace. And what do we receive when we draw near to his throne of grace? What does the text say? What do we receive? We receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Mercy reminding us and assuring us that God loves us and he's forgiven us. Grace, that divine assistance, that strength from the Lord to flee temptations, to endure the testing, to walk by faith, to trust and obey. Oh, what do we find when we confidently go to the throne of grace? When we draw near, we get strength, God's strength that we need. Strength to flee temptation. Strength to endure testing. Strength to walk by faith and not by sight. Strength to trust and obey. Strength to persevere in this fallen, difficult world. We find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Perfect, considerate, timely help. Just what we need. So come with confidence, loved one. God loves you. Jesus died for you. Keep coming to God in prayer. Keep holding fast your confession and keep coming to God in prayer. You need that grace to persevere and you will find grace and mercy to help in your time of need. Praise God for the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for our perfect and great high priest. And this morning we're going to continue to celebrate that truth and remember Christ's sacrifice for us by taking the Lord's Supper. So let's prepare our hearts now to do that. If I could have the men come forward who are going to uh, serve the Lord's Supper to us, please. Again, in these trays you'll find cups stacked on one another with, with uh, 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 the bread and, and the, the, the juice to represent the body and the blood of, of Christ as, as reminders, as symbols Right? His sacrifice is once and for all. His, his work of, of atonement is finished. But these are symbols to point us back to what he did t- for us on the cross. And it's important as we pass this around to, to uh, make clear that this is only for the family of God. Use this as a personal time of, of worship, of, of prayer. Thank God for his grace, revel in his love. But it's only for those who have publicly identified with Christ in repentance and faith. And again, loved ones, may you use this as a time to to rejoice in your perfect priest. Rejoice in the work he's done for you. And and may you use it as a time to draw near to the throne of grace. Pray to him in thanksgiving and and in petition. Ask him for help in, in the areas you're struggling in. So may you be blessed today.